Welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, June 6th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing well. Uh, Got what feels like rare nowadays, two days off in a row. And uh, after spending most of yesterday at the park, after watching some tennis in the morning, I did nothing except go out for a walk today. It kind of crawled by. I'm a bit antsy and ready to work, and it's not the worst feeling in the world. How are you doing? Little case of the Monday scaries. Uh, well, it's more like a Sunday for me, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, so whatever that equivalent is, yeah, just felt like there's so much could be doing and did none of it. And yeah, I know the day kind of got away, but I think that in and of itself is some sort of mental reset. Yeah, for sure. Um, always good to have those days. I had one yesterday, my, my version of your day, able to, to settle down a little bit. It's going to be a busy week and weekend for me. Um, and was trying to get out, do some throwing get the frisbee around and got absolutely thunderstormed on so i'm a little drenched spirits are low but ready to do the pod with you as always and and what a weekend we had in the sports world of course french open final the nba finals and the nhl conference finals uh the the really now for the last month or so the things we the the key three sports we've been dialed in on on this podcast and uh we'll keep that rolling today with uh with our analysis so max what do you say we talk game two of the nba finals where um many were saying it was a must win and i agreed with them for the golden state warriors you cannot drop two games at home and the home crowd, electric as always, they push back and get a monster, monster win against the Boston Celtics. Um, a surprising blowout. And they knocked the series up at one. What were your initial thoughts coming out of this one? Yeah, really two thoughts kind of sum up how I feel about the game and the rest of the series going forward. One, I think the Boston Celtics were the better team in nine out of 10 areas in the first half. It's just that that 10th area was taking care of the ball on the turnovers, and that caused what should have been a dominant half for them to have a lead going into the third quarter to turn into a 50-50 even game. I think the Warriors led by two. And uh, the other actually comes off of Reddit, and it was one of the funniest things I've read. Um, this is a full paragraph. Third quarter Celtics have got to be one of the worst team that's ever made the NBA playoffs. I'm convinced second quarter Celtics would sweep third quarter Celtics in a series and beat them by an average of 50 a game. I wouldn't hesitate to trade every player on third quarter Celtics for draft picks and a bag of potato chips. In case this isn't clear, I loathe third quarter Celtics with every fiber of my being. Thanks, DJRY guy 20. Um, he made me chuckle with that one, but... I remember a couple games in the Miami Heat series, I think, are being referenced here. Maybe some of the Bucks ones as well. Um, 
if the Boston Celtics want to win this series, they need to find a way to be going into the third quarter with a bigger lead so they have some change to blow or figure out something because that that really where the game, um, they lost it. And I don't even have one or two things to point to there. It just seems like a consistent collapse. Yeah, I mean, the third quarter where they did get handily beat in game one but able to reel that one back in and you just felt at the end of this third quarter with the back-to-back deep deep threes from Jordan Poole uh that that the Celtics were in trouble this time around in game two yeah they say lightning doesn't strike twice and uh I remember the broadcast team talking about like does Steve Curry even need to say anything here about what not to do this fourth quarter and the consensus was no. Um, this team knows what they have to do to go and win this fourth quarter, where I didn't even watch it because it seemed so evidently clear after that backbreaking shot by Poole. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was it was an awesome shot for sure, uh, right in front of Steph Curry, who had another remarkable game. But I think the story of this one, really, Canadian Nick Stauskas <laughs> scoring in an NBA Finals game. Shout out to our boy, uh, he's he's been up and down G League. I think he was the eighth overall pick way back. And uh, yeah, anytime Nick Stauskas is scoring in a finals game, you know, it was a blowout. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're right. Not not a ton to point to, but we'll do our best to, to dive into some of these pieces. Um, I think the largest difference in this game has to be Gary Payton, the second, jumping in in game two. And he just took away the minutes from Iguodala, from Otto Porter. And I mean, the Warriors don't want to hear this, but Poole and Thompson, right? When, when one of those guys is on the floor, they're a great offensive engine. Um, well, Thompson's been brutal. We'll get there. Uh, but they, they get attacked on the defensive end. And Gary Payton is that guy who keeps things moving on offense, but is locked in defensively. And when you have him and Wiggins being able to take Brown and Tatum, it just makes everyone else's lives so much easier, especially Draymond Green, who's flying around being the rover that he's so good at being. Kevon Looney's able to stay home a little bit more. Uh, and, and it's just more impactful having another great perimeter f- defender out there. And, and you noticed it. He was able to pressure the ball quite a bit against Brown and Tatum. Uh, he was able to pressure Al Horford. That was a big adjustment that the Warriors made was Al Horford, all of his shots in game one were, were open. And in this game, he was given a lot less airspace uh, and and not nearly as impactful in this one. And so Gary Payton was a huge re-addition after getting taken out by Dylan Brooks in the Memphis series. And Golden State's really going to need him if they're going to win this series going forward. On the other side, Derek White, who had a fantastic game one, continued his hot shooting in the first quarter and then sort of disappeared. And... What we saw there from Boston was Marcus Smart looks hurt. And when he's not flicking the ball around, they don't necessarily have a guard to get them into their sets, which hasn't hurt them too much in this playoffs. But uh, Derek White was a guy who was really, really important for them. Same with Al Horford in game one and, and just didn't get give them the same level of production. And that's why we saw that significant drop off in terms of scoring there uh, when it came to the third quarter. 
Yeah, I, I do. I mentioned the turnovers for the Celtics throughout the first half, but you do have to give that Warriors defense some credit. Um, it felt like the first five quarters of this series, maybe take out the third quarter of game one there. And the Celtics were just easy open looks at will. Uh, the drive-in kick from Tatum and Brown seemed to work every time. And the Warriors finally put some pressure on the ball and just slowed down those open looks. Um, I, I think Horford took his first field goal attempt like late second half, if not early, excuse me, late second quarter, if not early third quarter. Um, he's just one of those guys where when the ball kicks out to him, he'll take it. But if, if the half court set isn't generating him the open space, he's not really getting that look and touch. And the Warriors, a little more consistent defensively, stayed home, did a great job just collapsing pressure on the ball every time someone tried to drive it in. Mm -hmm. And it felt like that generated five or six turnovers, at least in that first half. Um, that The Celtics' open, easy looks just seemed to dry up. Jason Tatum had a fantastic first half. I didn't think he played badly in the second half or at least in the third quarter, just the lights out three point shooting, not quite there. Jalen Brown had a great start to the game and then about three minutes in seemed to dry up. And yeah, I think watching this Celtics team run throughout the playoffs, I, I've been here before several times where if they take care of the ball like this, they are going to lose to the Bucs. If they can't take care of the ball, Jimmy Butler is going to continue to make them turn it over. And that gap in points off turnover is going to sink them this series. So I've called it as an Achilles heel a couple times already this playoffs and been wrong. So I'm kind of hesitant to say too much on it. I do think the Celtics will recover and rebound and even though it's something they've a lesson they've had to learn and relearn throughout this run the short-term implementation does seem to stick a little uh, but the, the third quarter warriors seems inevitable because i can't really explain what happens in that third quarter um, other than some steve kerr maybe signing away some part of his existence permanently to just let it be a staple of this dynasty. Uh, the Celtics need to find a way to make the lead bigger in that first half when they're the better team and be heading into that fourth quarter with a recoverable scoring margin if this trend of them being an awful third quarter team and the Warriors being an excellent third quarter team continues, uh, both of which have just been so consistent throughout this playoffs. I, I don't think there's one or two easy fixes for it. Yeah. I think we see a much stronger Celtics effort in the third when they're at home. Uh, Ime Udoka, one of the most one of the most significant changes he made uh, at coming in as the new coach was accountability, and he has carried that theme all the way through the entire season. He has called guys out when they have not played well, and he even did it in the NBA Finals. He pulled the plug quite early in that game um, just to see if the bench would give them any sort of spark, but he was obviously upset with the starters and and how that game got away from them and sat them down and didn't even give them the opportunity to try and build momentum because of how poorly they had played in that third quarter. And so I expect him to lay down the law heavily with this team. 
before game three. And, and I expect to see a much stronger game three uh, performance in the third quarter. Now, again, all the credit to the Warriors. They won that game on their defense, 14 points for the Celtics in the third quarter. Uh, we already talked about Wiggins and Peyton and Draymond Green and Kevon Looney, but Steph Curry, who was obviously the best offensive player uh, for the Warriors and will continue to be, but what was so striking to me was how locked in he was defensively in that third quarter, closing out, uh, just taking away driving lanes from Peyton Pritchard and, and Derek White and Marcus Smart and a couple of steals and a couple of great closeouts and just having his hands really active and, and staying in front of guys. Like he has done it so far in these first two games really effectively. And he's always a guy that, or always been a guy that, people think they can attack and always has had underrated defense, but now in his fully fledged experienced form, you can see him thinking a step ahead and, and really rotating and, and closing out and staying in front of people. Well, um, he, anytime the Celtics tried to attack him, he hedged really well, was able to recover and they gained nothing out of it except losing a couple seconds off the shot clock. And that was, you saw Jalen Brown and Tatum taking some difficult, contested shots because they tried attacking Steph and they just couldn't do it effectively, which is why I think Peyton's so important because uh, they love to attack that, that Thompson or, or that pool as well. And, and if Peyton's out there, it gives them one less person on the floor to attack. And uh, we saw that shine through in the third quarter, the intensity from the Warriors was excellent. Uh, they definitely made it more physical and we'll see once again, how the Celtics respond as they've had to do every time they've been punched in the mouth. Uh, so going into game three here will be very, very interesting to see what it what it looks like now. I do still like the Celtics for this series. The only thing worrying me is if the Warriors can win like this, what happens when Thompson and Wiggins start hitting their open layups? It's fair. It's a fair point. Uh, but they're not getting the same open looks because there's always a Draymond or a Looney or, a, or even a Peyton on the floor that the Celtics can can rotate off of if they'd like um, to. did you see some of the layups Wiggins missed <laughs> yeah he had a rough night and and that's not what they're asking him to do no. they're asking him to do his absolute best on on Tatum and Brown but uh yeah you're looking for a couple games like he had in that Dallas series so we'll see that's it for me any final yeah. thoughts there on game two uh no that we got through it all there yeah, so, so now we got to wait another fortnight uh, before now. before game three. Uh, it's Wednesday. Marathon eh? in the finals. Yep. yep. Yeah, so three days, that, that seems short relative to how it's gone. It's the same amount of time, though. It just okay. feels it just feels shorter for some reason. I guess I watched uh, the first one live, and then I caught up on this one this yeah, morning. Yeah. So slightly smaller span for my viewing between, and right. then a bigger span between game one and two. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll slide in here to talking hockey where we had a couple of awesome game threes here in the NHL conference finals. We'll start with the game and the series that's set to go tonight. While I talk to you, uh, the Colorado avalanche go into Edmonton and they win and they take a stranglehold on this series. We said, uh, on Friday, how they have shown themselves to be the dominant team and, and the superior team. And Edmonton is just looking for 
a couple of special performances from from their top guys and uh, you can see McDavid and Drysaddle they're working really hard out there and they're laboring but there is really on, only so much you can do when this Avalanche team seems uh, insurmountable and omnipresent on the ice even without Kadri they were dominating play uh, I think the shots at one point were 44 to 25 in the third period and and one thing that they did great in game two and continue to do in game three was when they tied the game, when they took the lead, they didn't take their foot off the gas and they continued to apply pressure to the Oilers. Uh, they can taste it. They're so close and they're continuing to ride Pavel Fransuz, who looked really good in game three. And the key moment I think in this game for me was avalanche were rolling uh, Ryan McLeod comes up the ice out of nowhere, just kind of shoots it from just inside the blue line, beats Francis glove side, a shocking goal, uh, really energized the crowd. And for the next two minutes or so, Edmonton had all the possession, all the play there in the third period. They draw a penalty. They have a deadly power play. Um, so many chances on the power play. McDavid gets robbed by Francis, really making up for the goal he let in in the second goal. And uh, right as the power play is expiring, Evan Bouchard rings a slap shot off the post. Puck bounces out and down the ice, and Bouchard's going to get it, but he's at the end of a two-minute shift on the power play. JT Comfort jumps out of the box, muscles him off the puck, gets it a partial break in and, and beats Mike Smith five hole. And that's a tough one Edmonton uh, for Mike Smith to give up, but also a tough one with all the momentum on your side, so many chances and all it takes is one break back the other way. And Colorado, Colorado closes the door um, some hectic moments late in the game, but they get the empty netter and this series feels all but finished. So Edmonton, again, going to need something, extra special, which we know their top guys are capable of, but Mike Smith, who we said was the best goalie in that second round series against Calgary is, is not providing that same uh, output and confidence for this team. And McDavid looked very frustrated near the end of that game, because you can just tell his, there's no one on the ice except maybe McKinnon who operates at the level that he does. And so when his teammates are slow or, <laughs> or kick the puck around, uh, you can see he's just frustrated by it. And um, yeah, he, this is the closest he's gotten so far. And it doesn't look like he's going to get any farther. So we'll see if they can extend this series tonight. But I don't know if this gets past Colorado going home for game five, which is unfortunate as another Canadian uh, year of hockey is wasted with no Stanley Cup returning home to the motherland. It almost feels like a win just to make it to the final four the way things have <laughs> the gone. Canadians made it to the finals last year, but we don't count that because we don't like them. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it must be so rough to put your team on your back, get three quarters of the way there and then find there is a limit to how broad your shoulders can get, even as the greatest player in the world. Um, it, I will be fascinated to see how the goaltending holds up for Colorado because that seems like the last piece of the puzzle on paper, at least keeping them from being a dynasty or being the next dynasty. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that in future pods. But yeah, I, I, 
a bit of a letdown of a series, but in a hockey playoffs that have been fairly wild, hard to predict, um, this seems like the return to the mean where the better team does what the better team was supposed to do, which there's been some of, but I would say less than expected this run. So surprised to not be surprised with this series. And similar vibes. Well, this this next series does surprise me as um, for the first time in three years, the Lightning lose back-to-back playoff games. Yeah, and... I, I, I got to say similar vibes, but still surprising vibes because the, the Rangers have been the better team in this series so far. And it feels a little bit Leafs-ish in this first round where the Leafs were definitely the better team. And I would end up saying probably 55% of their series, but just couldn't get the job done. The Rangers were the better team in the first two games, far and away, uh, really shut down the Tampa Bay offense who has struggled to score. Shesterkin has been excellent. And Mika Zibanejad, what a special player who uh, the Rangers were able to steal from Ottawa for Derek Brizard and a a seventh round pick. Um, He, I mean, obviously a different point in his career, but he has really blossomed into a superstar. Him and Chris Kreider have been awesome for through the first three games. And somehow, like they, they could very easily be up three, nothing in the series. But that the Tampa Bay Lightning are like a Chernobyl cockroach that is has nine lives. <laughs> like they just somehow win. It's it's so improbable. And down two nothing in the game, two nothing in the series, the life draining out of the building, and they get a power play. Kucherov scores on the one-timer. They go into the, they finish the second period just owning possession. Everything one-sided. The ice is completely tilted towards Shesterkin, who played, again, had an excellent game. Uh, and and they somehow managed to hold on into the third period. They finally generate a chance. Stamco scores, and, and the game is tied. And the momentum's all their way, but you still got to bring it home because the Rangers have responded time and time again on their side as well. And the Lightning just owned the third period. They were trying their best. They couldn't solve Shesterkin. And then in the dying, dying minutes of this game, uh, Hedman to Kutrov and just a beautiful backhand tap pass. Palat buries it with 41 seconds to go. And it completely changes the complexion of this series. Tampa has been the inferior team. They have been the slower team. The pace of play from this New York Rangers squad is uh, electrifying. The kid line has been doing great work. They didn't have their best game in game three, but uh, the top line certainly has been motoring and, and, uh, Tampa, I guess, just refinding their sea legs. You wonder how serious they took the first two games, but you know they've, they've been punched in the mouth now. And this is a team that has won back-to-back cups. They're looking for their third. It's, it's one of the greatest teams constructed. And uh, yeah, they've, they've flipped it from the, from the grave. They, they have arrived back and um, we'll see if New York can respond. I honestly think they can, they have been the better team, but will they suffer from a case of playing the Tampa Bay lightning and 
there's not much more to it than that. The, the Lightning need to figure out more ways to generate some offense uh, from the non-Kutrov Stamkos lines or line when they're out there together. Uh, this is when they're really feeling the loss of Braden Point. And then on the other side, they, they have to solve the best goalie they've faced. And Vasilevsky has been really good, but not the same top tier God tier that he's been in their previous two playoff runs. So they'll need a little bit more out of him, whatever he can give uh, as we get deeper into this series. And, and that is also where New York is in trouble because Tampa lives for those late series moments. And while New York just went to game seven, uh, what in both first yep, rounds, both they have their scars for sure, but it, it's a different beast when it's the team that's done it so much more and, and so much harder. Um, my last note that I just had here was uh, Shesterkin has flopped twice now in back-to-back games, not saying neither were penalties, but he has a uh, flair for the dramatic. He likes to enhance contact. Um, and, and I imagine Tampa doesn't take too kindly to it. You can't touch the goaltender very often, but if they can try and continue to, to get in his head, get in his airspace, I wonder how that will affect him in, in these games going forward, because uh, yeah, he likes to take the contact and everything goes conf- confetti gloves uh, off of his person. And it's like, he's been struck by lightning. Well, best revenge on a goalie is run him out of his net. So Tampa, one more chance at home to do that tomorrow. I, I'm rooting for the Bolts for two reasons. One, so we lost to the team who wins the Stanley Cup. And two, come on, just give me the Avs-Bolts finals, like the two best teams in the league. That's what I want to see. So looking forward to game four tomorrow night. And I don't know if you have any more notes on this one. I do not. So let us get to the King of Clay. Uh, what did you say? Uh, unkillable cockroach from Chernobyl with nine lives. That about sums up Rafael Nadal on those courts. Um, did I give you a quick stat here? Absolutely blew my mind. First of all, he has won 15 of the last 19 French Opens. 14. He's won 14. 14, 14 of the last 18 French Opens. And he is 112 in three all time in the tournament. his his career has gone for 20 years and he has lost three times in the french open is is they're not like there's a one percent of athletes and then there there is that again legendary tier one percent of the one percent where accomplishments like this live and it's pretty unprecedented to, to have this level of dominance at an event of any kind. And I know you watched a lot of the match so you can break down. It wasn't the most exciting in straight sets, but I mean, what, what is there more to say about Rafael Nadal? No, it's all been said before. Someone called what Rafa's done at the French open, the greatest achievement in sports ever. And I think there's a pretty goddamn strong case to be made there. Um, it's, 36 years old and he's it's the new 25 um yeah 
What's crazy too is the first half of this match, he looked beatable. He didn't look like the Rafael Nadal that played Novak Djokovic a few days prior, where um, every single shot, um, it, it didn't matter if he needed to make it with an inch of margin. You just knew there were no errors coming there. Um, things like back-to-back double faults in one of his first service games after going up a break to lose that break. Um, moments of nice play, but his opponent, Rudd, also coming in a bit weak, kind of gets him off there. Um, he takes the first set up just in a kind of nonstop break fest. Uh, neither is best looking tennis. And then it seems like Rudd gets it going. Uh, he ends up getting, holds his serve and then gets a break and is leading 3-1 in the second set. And it feels like we have a tennis match on our hands. And then Rafael Nadal goes and wins 11 straight sets, or excuse me, straight games to just win another French Open um, just like that. Uh, it, it was pretty clear from almost everything Rudd said going into this match. Um, the hero worship he's had for Rafa, like in his the formative years of his teen and childhood career, uh, the fact that he knew they'd both logged similar amounts of match time, the fact that they had practiced together a ton and Rafa always came out ahead. Uh, it, it didn't really seem like Rudd was visu- visualizing himself stepping out with the win. Uh, early in that second set, he was doing some great work on really getting his forehand going and using that to create all the other angles and find himself some winners. But it, it's just Rafa on those courts. If you're not attacking 100% of the time and you're not perfect in those attacks, you're losing. And um, that you do have to come in ready to play some of the best tennis of your life. It's a really big ask. It's incredible nerves, all of that without mentioning if it's your first time ever in the finals. And so ultimately an inevitable result um not too much more to say on the tennis itself it puts rafa his grand slam count at 22 uh we'll touch more on the grand slam race another time i think because um who's Djokovic today's pod is all about celebrating rafael nadal it was absurd <laughs> can you think of anything like more maybe we'll um bracket it just to individual sports competition and not bring teams into this like i'm kind of stumped for anything else that has been that much consistency and that top tier elite level of competition i i don't know if i could i mean you have to go outside of your traditional north american sports like, well, I'm thinking like Phelps and Bolt in the Olympics. Um, yeah, you could talk like Mikhail Kingsbury in moguls. Yeah, um, yeah. Secretariat in horse racing. Okay, don't know that. Serena one. Williams is is another one that you could throw in there. Uh, that's a tough one though because she is what twenty five Grand Slams. I couldn't um, tell you off the top yeah. of my head. Uh, just there like that one is an apples to apples comparison she hasn't been able to dominate an event the way rafa is yeah yeah. i'd throw tom brady in there 
Um, again, not the same pure domination, but he's done it better than anyone else in his sport. Yeah, I mean, what's his Super Bowl record? Like six and two or something? Seven and two, seven and three, yeah. Okay, yeah. So winning percentage a bit not as good as 112 and three. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess Ralph Michael... is 14 and 0 in finals too. Yeah, Michael Jordan, six yeah. and 0 in the NBA finals. Yeah, it, it puts him right up there. Um, it's hard to make the team to individual sports comparison because you're just relying on so much else. But at the same time, all those other things you rely on lighten the load on your shoulders. Whereas um, tennis is such a mental game. Um, having to be so locked in and so consistent for such a ridiculously long stretch of time is such a Herculean feat. And to do it so well over 20 years is yeah i don't have words for it um if there's words to describe what rafael nadal has done at the french open i have not been taught them yeah well you might want to throw some comments in uh for those we we need some inspiration what more we've we've given him all the flowers he he can get and i don't know what much more there is to say yeah looking forward to next year hope to see it again (laughs) yeah until then, uh, we'll be moving into grass season shortly. Very, yeah. very exciting. We got a couple of small 250, 500 tournaments kicking off this week. I know Chapo and Felix both involved in those. Um, I think I've seen Medvedev's name as well, who's very happy to be out of the clay court season. Uh, no Zverev, a huge bummer. But yeah, on we go. We got uh, two 250 tournaments this week on grass. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we got NBA Finals. We got NHL. We got MLB. Uh, Formula One this weekend. UFC, probably. <laughs> and I think it's uh, the pay-per-view this coming week. There you go. There you go. Lots and lots and lots of sports to take in still, even though we are heading towards the dog days of summer. And we'll be here to break it all down for you. So thank you, everyone, for listening once again to the pod. Appreciate each and every one of you. And, uh, yeah, continue to share it out and and give us your thoughts. Uh, Reach out, provide feedback. We'd love to hear it. And, uh, yeah, I hope everyone's having a a great month of June so far because I know I am. Yeah, well, between now and the next time we're on, there will have been – three hockey conference finals matches um a couple hundred tennis games played and uh one basketball game so breaking all that down next time sports next door signing out